Thank you for being here. Uh, glad we fit in the room so far. Um, we have, we're going to talk about the days, creation days one, one through three today. We're finally getting to that <laughs> after, well, this is like the 10th tenth, tenth week of this class. Um, so what we're going to be talking about today, uh, well, first, let's get into the cool sciencey thing of the day. This is an ant. Okay, next slide. No, just kidding. Uh, so this is an ant who is warning you to stay back because it's going to do something that you do not want to happen to you, okay? So we're, I was just talking to Jim about fire ants in the south. Anybody experienced fire ants? Okay. This is, this is worse than a fire ant. And it's, I've never heard of an insect. Apparently there are some, several insects that do this kind of thing. But what it does is if it's threatened... That's, you know, there's never just one ant, right? There's lots of lots of ants, but if it if it's certain, the one in front who meets the attacker will constrict its abdomen muscles so hard that it literally explodes. Trigger warning. Yeah. So this is the exploded ant on the right, and it explodes toxic guts all, and they're toxic and gluey all over the attacker. And so several will do this on the attacker, and it will immobilize the attacker, and then the rest of the, hot, the, the ants can swarm over and kill it and get rid of the attacker. But that, that just shocked me <laughs> to hear about that. I just found out this last week about this ant that like, self, literally self-sacrifices for the good of the rest of them. So, the, the, and uh, funnily enough... The, the Latin name is Colobopsis explodens. <laughs> I'm not sure if explodens is a Latin word. Or they're really reaching for this one. but Anyway, so um, last week what we, we talked about, uh, hold on. Last week we finished up talking about the the idea of functional ontology, and how um, ontology being what it means to exist. And so uh, we talked about how in the ancient Near East, back in the time when uh, Genesis was written, the view of what it meant to exist to the people at the time, when looking at uh, other texts around the, the the area at the time, Egyptian and Babylonian things like that, um, creation meant giving things a function and a purpose. They were much less concerned with the physical attributes of a thing. I mean, obviously, they believed that those things existed, and they believed that God made those things. That was just a given. They weren't concerned with the physical aspects as much as we are. And that, I think that partially comes from science, and our, our focus on science. But existence really came down to what had meaning to them. And to them, function and purpose had ultimate meaning, and that's what they were mostly concerned with. And as we go through today, we'll see that Function and purpose really to us, if we think about it, has more meaning than physical reality, at least for Christians, and so we'll see that a little bit later. Um, but they, a, a shorthand way to think of this is they thought of creation more like creating a company than creating a chair. It's more of an organizational, giving things uh, meaning and purpose. And so last week we also talked about the, um, the verse 1, about how in the beginning God created, and what knowing that they they thought of 
existence's function and purpose, then creation would have meant assigning those functions and purpose to, to things that were there. Um, and so today we're, um, I want to look at how, how it's not just these other ancient cultures who gave us this idea. If this, this whole, this whole uh, concept of this functional ontology and how Genesis 1 is actually talking about God assigning functions to things is not something that you have to delve into these obscure Babylonian and Akkadian texts and all this kind of stuff. It's something that you can actually see from, from looking through Scripture and, and uh, reasoning out some of the things that, that are said there. So, talking about the beginning when God created. Um, if creation has a material focus, like we tend to think of in modern-day America... If creation is material primarily, what would the beginning state of, of, of the world or the universe be before, before the beginning, quote-unquote? Nothing. Yeah, nothing. No stuff, no things, no material, just emptiness, right? If your focus on, on existence was primarily meaning and purpose-based, what, fo- what would your beginning state be? Yeah, it could be something. Could there could be materials there that's not something totally required? Disorganized and uh, without function. Yeah, something disorganized without without function, and then so then the creation would be bringing those whatever happens to be there into organization and function. So if we look at verse two of Genesis one, what kind of beginning state do we see? Yeah, exactly that. It's not a absence of things. It's not a complete nothingness because God is hovering over the surface of the waters. So we already know that we have a planet with water on it. There's something there already. And so the beginning state is not nothingness. The beginning state in Genesis 1 is actually somethingness, but it's not useful for humanity. And that's what we'll see throughout the rest of the chapter 1 as we go through the days that what God is doing is he's not just organizing stuff for the sake of organizing stuff. He's putting things in such a way that they're useful for humanity and specifically the people of Israel at the time, but us as well. He's organizing it for them, and the humanity is like the culmination of the whole thing. And then humanity is given an ultimate purpose about taking care of the planet. And we'll get to that next week. No spoilers. Well, some spoilers. So, um, <laughs> one thing that we uh, that I'm just going to breeze over really quickly. There's lots written about this, especially if you look at the book that I'm taking a lot of this from. Um, we often look at the the, uh, the the words formless and empty or formless and void as having to do with functional or uh, material things, like it's it's there's no form to it or it's void, meaning empty and nothing. But if you actually look deeper into like a uh, like a technical analysis of the Greek, of the Hebrew, and all that stuff, the better way to to um, translate those words is actually more like unproductive and useless, because those words are used elsewhere in Scripture, and this is the only place that they're really translated as formless and void. Every place else, it's 
more like an unproductive or useless kind of a feel to it. So right off the bat, we already know that it's not nothingness. There's something that's not useful to humanity. And so that God's going to step in and do something about that. So we're going to start looking at the days today, like I mentioned. So day one. And this is, I mentioned a while back how one of the, re, one of the things that really uh, I loved about this interpretation of Genesis 1 was that how many questions it answered for me about the, that I had already always had about the, and that confused me and didn't make sense about the, the chapter. And so this is where you start getting some of these answers. So I'm really excited about the stuff we're going to talk about today. And it also starts to answer the question that I've been teasing for weeks now, what is the purpose of Genesis 1? We'll get to that next week. But it, star- it starts now. <laughs> we really start getting into it now. So, uh, day one, starting in verse three. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning the first day. So historically, we've understood this to mean that on day one, God created this thing we call light. There was darkness before, and now we have light. But there, just reading through these scriptures, there have always been two bit, one huge question and one minor question that's more of a bigger question now to me. But what, what are the questions that this raises in, in relation to the creation of things if, if this is a material thing? Oh, so if, if, the, if the universe is 6,000 years old, how did the light get here? Yeah, how did the light get here? Okay. Why is there light first and then sun later? That yeah. always confused me. Did we get our light from the sun? Yeah, the sun is mentioned. The sun and the stars and the moon are all mentioned in, verse, in day four. So how did we get light three days before we get the, the light sources? It's a very good question. Yeah. When it says light was good, light is functional, but it's not good or bad. It's just light. So what kind of light is it that it was good? And that kind of gets into what what does good mean here, which I've kind of skipped over. We can talk about it sometimes as well. But good is the opposite of what what would not be good. So if it's (laughs) right. (laughs) This is how philosophers talk. (laughs) Good is not good. So... If 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 you can know if you know if you know that not good is non-functional, then good would be functional, in this case. So, any other questions that leap to leap to mind with this? Yeah, Joshua. If if you if you approach this as from a like an allegorical standpoint, that could be Jesus, but then at the same time. Yeah, he says, he, right, he is the light. But then we get into theological quandaries of did God create Jesus, and if God created Jesus, how is Jesus God, and all that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. Well, kind of tagging on to that, what I notice is God didn't create darkness. The darkness is there. So that makes me think of the light and dark that you always, that you hear in the rest of the Bible, that is not physical light and darkness, but is spiritual light and darkness. Yeah, it could be talking about spiritual things. 
But if, if you're, well, the question that, that bothers me, <clears throat> not bothers me, it makes me confused. If you look at verse 5, why didn't God, God just call the light, light? Why did he call the light day? And this is where we started start getting into seeing how the text itself shows the functions as opposed to the thing. So if, and so the, to, to me, these are the two big questions. How is there light before the sun and why didn't God, God just call light, light? Um, so if we're looking at verse 5, um, I don't think what, if, if this is not a material discussion, um, and because light as a material thing is just a very recent idea, it's a very recent scientific idea. It's always been like a state of being or a condition, like darkness is a condition. We know darkness is not a thing, it's the absence of a thing, so it's not a thing itself. And so, um, if it's not talking about light itself, what, then what? What is God talking about when He says the light? He called the light day. Because light is not day; it's daytime. It signifies daytime, in, if, as far as the sun is concerned. But if so, if we're talking about day in relation to something that's light, what would that re- refer to? And I'm asking. Maybe I'm asking a very confusing question. I, 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 does that make sense? What are we? What are we talking? What, what is this light then? What is light in relation to day? A period of light is daytime. So you can you can presume that, and a lot of us have thought that this is kind of maybe presumed already. That what he's doing here is God called the period of light day, and he called the period of light of darkness night. Does that make sense? Was that the same thing in Hebrew language or whatever that was written in? No, it's just, it, it's just, yeah, in Hebrew, it actually just says light and darkness. But looking at how, what this means, it wouldn't make sense for the light to be called day because what day is is a period of light. So you could, you could extrapolate from that that what he's saying is he called the period of light day and the period of night, darkness he called night. And so... When, when he called it that, um, when he called it the period of light, that makes sense. Because otherwise, this verse doesn't make any sense, calling the light day, because light is light. So if we back up now to verse 4, with the same idea in mind, God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from darkness. We can extrapolate from that and translate the verse as, God saw that the period of light was good, and he separated the period of light from the period of darkness. Okay, and if you take one more step back into the verse 3, this is kind of where it's kind of the aha moment of, of this. So if, God, if it says, and God said, let there be light, if the, we, like I said, we presume this is a thing, but if it says, let, God said, let there be a period of light, it removes this concept completely that God is creating a physical thing called light. What he's doing is he's organizing and setting up daytime, which is not a thing. It's a concept that has use and meaning for people. Make sense? 
Um, <laughs> yeah, just jump right ahead there. So, so if you look at these together, where it says, God said, let there be a period of light, and then he says, he called the period of light day, and the period of darkness he called night. What function is being set up here? Chris, he just said it. Time. And so what day one is actually, I, I believe, talking about is God is setting up the basis for time for humanity. He's, he's setting up the universe in such a way that we can have a concept of time in our lives, which is a very important thing to have, I think we would all argue. And because the period of light and we're moving into a period of darkness and back, back and forth. And this also answers the question that some have is, why does it say there was evening and then there was morning the first day? Because darkness was already there, and when God delineated a period of time that he called daytime, then, that would, then there was morning the first day. Which goes all the way back to why the Jewish people see, the, uh, see time starting at sundown instead of sunup. Yeah. Um, and that, that just kind of makes me think of just what we know now with the organization and predictability of the universe and how uh, stars move and planets move and how that's, it, it's like a big uh, clock. It's very, very organized. And so looking at that verse in this way, kind of makes me think of a carpenter going to build a house. Uh, maybe one of the first things they'd want to do is say, well, do I want to use a ruler or a, a measuring stick that measures in yards or feet or right. how am I going to measure this? And, and so maybe that's the basis for uh, how everything was able to be so organized and, and, and work so well is that he's delineating, this is my ruler, this time period, this is how I'm going to start yeah, I think that's a really good analogy between like how you're going to measure a, like a physical thing with which scale you're going to use. God says, "I'm going to you, I'm going to want you guys to measure time basically on day and night, which is the base the like if you don't have clocks and second hands and stuff, you're going to mostly measure your time on day and night periods, which is what these people did." So, I'm going to be moving fast through this, so do stop me if you have questions. So, let's look at day two. And God said, let the firmament be between the waters. Let, let there be a firmament between the waters to separate water from water. So, God made the firmament and separated the water under the firmament from the water above it, and it was so. God called the firmament sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So, this one does seem like he's creating a physical thing, this firmament that... God said, let there be a firmament. Um, but if you remember back to what we, we talked a few weeks ago about the ancient view of cosmology and how this, this was the earth and this firmament of heaven, the Hebrew word actually is better translated as dome, which is why you see the, all these weird translations. Every, almost every translation does it differently. There's vault, expanse, firmament. None of them say dome because that doesn't make sense. There's not an actual dome up there. But to the people who first got this book thousands of years ago, they literally thought there was a literal dome up in the sky. So if you translate this as dome, 
there be a dome of, uh, between the waters to separate. Um, if we go back to this thing, um, what was the purpose and function of this dome to the people at the time? To keep the rain out. Yeah. And you see, like, this has, uh, shows windows, these little squares. Yeah, they, they truly believe that above this dome, there was the, this, this expanse of water, which is kind of why the sky looks sort of blue at, in, up in the sky. And they also believe that there is massive amounts of water, like this cosmic water everywhere else. And we just had this separation, which we'll get to in the next day. So when you get to the purpose of the firmament to them, it was to give them two things, to give them a habitable space because... Before this, there was just the surface of the, of the deep, the waters on the planet. So God separated some of those, took, the, took some of them out, put them up, up high, and left some of them down below and put this physical dome with windows in it to allow water in to control precipitation. And so what God is saying here is, once again, he's not changing their view of science because to him that, that that wasn't the important thing. What he's saying is, Okay, you think this is how it works, it's fine, whatever. I want to tell you I'm the one who did this for you. And so functionally, what it's doing is it's kind of both of those things, but it's primarily talking about controlling precipitation, which is what? Weather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. True, but the people who received this book after they left Egypt would have experienced lots of rain. By then, then, yeah. So it's not saying it rained at this time, but then it gets into lots of other questions (laughs) Um, that we'll get into later. Um, But for the people who would have received this book, they would have believed that this was a controlling of weather thing. And so... What God is doing, if, if we, I mean, we no longer believe in a dome that's above the, in the sky. We don't believe it's there controlling the, the, the rain. But I do believe that God set up a weather system for us and so that he created this basis for weather. That we have rain, we have snow, we have sun, all these different things that are all part of the natural world that we need to live. That's what I think day two is talking about. Okay, day three. This one's a bit longer. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. Let the dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered waters, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit and seed on it, in it, according to the various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So, this one has confused a lot of people for a long time because... God doesn't actually make anything in this day at all. He doesn't 
produced physical material things. He separates, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, is very, a very like the most common thing for these ancient stories about creation to do is separating. So he does a lot of separating and uh, defining things. And he tells the land to do something. He says, produce trees and, fruit and fruits and things. But he doesn't actually do it himself, uh, which might be a fine point. But it, it, it actually has confused a lot of scholars for a long time that you have a creation text where God doesn't create something from nothing. Well, does he tell the land to, or does he just allow the land to do it? it the, the text just says, let the land. It doesn't say, yeah. land you produce. That's a good point. He either tells it or he says, let it, let it happen. Yeah. May it be so. Right. Which, so and, uh, it was there from the beginning. Right. It could be, could be uh, interpreted as that easily. So if you so, what he, what he seems to be doing is he seems to be doing two things in this in this day, which God typically does one thing a day, but in this day he does two. He separates the dry land, and he has the vegetation of uh, starts growing. But this is one area that some of these ancient texts can help us see what's going on here. It's actually just God doing one thing. So if you keeping in mind that the people who received this, this account of, in Genesis 1 had recently left Egypt, where they, left, where they lived for 400 years, and they're very entrenched in the culture there. Um, central to all Egyptian creation texts is the separation of water from dry land for the purpose of growing crops and agriculture. And this kind of makes sense if you look back to, if you, even today, something that happens every single year in, in Egypt, all of the, the, the most habitable land of Egypt is along the Nile. And every year, the Nile floods, like, a lot. Like, the entire area around it, and, like, the, the fields are completely covered in water. There's a guy, like, wind, you know, wind sailing across his crops. And the, so... This idea of the, the waters completely covering everything useful to them. And then every year, even to, today, I think, I didn't check this out, but at least in ancient times for sure, when the waters recede and you have this great fertile land that now I can plant and use and it's functional to me, they had a big celebration celebrating how the god Nun, uh, N-U-N, uh, did this and separated the, the water from the land. And so the, the, the Israelites would have had this story in their head. They knew about the, the waters receding and separating and all this kind of stuff. And so um, God is doing two th- not doing two things in this day. He's actually just doing one thing. And that one thing is he's making land available for agriculture. So if looking at what day three is, what God is actually doing is he's creating the basis for food. Not just separating and saying, go ahead and grow. He's doing something for people and for the, for the, for the uh, people at the time and for us. So if, if on these days God provides the basis of time, the basis of weather, and the basis of food... This, this is very instructive as far as how God perceives us, what, what he do, what does for us. 
He provides all these things, and he started out. He started out the creation doing these things for us that we could be used because these these three things. I mean, there's more to life than these three things, but these three things are fundamental to life. Especially thinking back to people who are way back in the time where most of them are farmers dealing with like trying to grow things. This was central to their existence. And sure, God made the things as well. But if we want to see the true glory of God's creation, thinking of it even now, it's not just that he brought stuff together or made stuff and things. It's that he brought the things together so that they work. If you, I mean, we talk about how complex the eye is. The eye is an extremely complex organ in your body. It's not just amazing that the eye has all these different tissues and cells and things that are together in just the right way, but it's that God brought those things together so we can see. So even to us, the function is much more important than the material itself. We can have all the stuff in the right place, but still not be able to see. And seeing is the key here. And so that's what God's doing with this. He's, He's saying, yeah, I did the physical stuff too. That's a given. But what I want to, to teach everybody is that even down to the basis of time, that's me. I did that for you. I, I made the weather for you. And I made the abil- availability of food for you. And like I said, it's not, it's not a surprise that these things also show up in the, other, the Egyptian and the Babylonian literature at the time as well. Um, I mean, looking at like one of the... Uh, oldest uh, Egyptian um, uh, creation text we have, it says that, uh, talking about one of the gods, it says, He created day, month, and year through the command of the Lord of command. He created summer and winter through the rising and setting of the sun. And he created food before we who are alive, the wonder of the fields. And in the Enuma Elysian from Babylon, which is the famous uh, creation text, the... One section talks about making night and day. One section, the next section is about the creation of clouds, wind, rain, and fog. And the next section talks about the harnessing of the waters of the, the Tiamat, which is like a river, for the purpose of providing agriculture, piling up dirt and releasing the Tigris and the Euphrates for that purpose. So this, this is a common thing around the text of the area. But... Once again, I wanted to show you guys that this is not just about the text from the other people around them. If you look in Scripture, this emphasis is elsewhere. Where does God recreate the earth in the Bible? Huh? No. He destroys the earth in the flood, and then he recreates it, right? And so, if you look at the, the account of the flood, what, what it even it had back to this cosmic cosmology thing, this ancient cosmology, talks about how the fountains of the deep were let go and the, the firmament was removed, basically. And so, what God did is the cosmos is set up, it's orderly, it's functional, it's doing what it should be doing for the humanity on the planet. And then humanity messes up, rebels. There's a crisis, a spiritual crisis. 
and God finds it necessary and it leads him to unmake the world in this sense. He releases all the waters. The earth becomes like it was in verse 2, just a, just a watery deep. It's un, unuseful. It's useless and meaningless to humanity. So that it, it like brings it back to day, day one. And then he slowly remakes the earth in that story. And if you look at verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 22, this is the God's promise at the very end of the story. After everything is back to where it should be, he says, As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So you have those three things that we just talked about listed in reverse order, actually, which kind of makes sense because he's recreating things. And he's saying, these things that are so fundamental to you that I gave you at the beginning and I had to unmake and remake, I'm promising that those three things are not going to go away. We have time, weather, and agriculture, basically, food. Yeah? So my question is, you know, according to the Genesis account, the flood happened before the Israelites would have even gotten this flood. So if they're worried about functionality and, and purpose of things, what does it matter to them that they get that account of the flood? I mean, it, because everything is being reestablished as it was in, in the beginning of Genesis. You know what I mean? Well, I, I think it's, it's kind of like, why, why do we need the stories we have in the Bible now? Because it's an instructive story that tells us that God takes this stuff seriously. He is willing to unmake everything he did and to, to fix a spiritual problem. And, and, but he's going to bring it back to where it should be. Yeah. I think that slide you had about God, God's provision is really a very common theme throughout the Bible. I mean, you know, that they just had come from, they're still maybe wandering around this time. I don't know when exactly it was written. Yeah. Like during probably or after. And God is providing manna and quail for them. And I think that's a huge part of the story he's trying to tell to both them and us <clears throat> is that he provides. And I think that's a big part of this. Yeah. The fact that God provides is, is very central to this whole story. Any other questions or thoughts? All right. So, in summary, um, what we're being taught here is really that... Um, we're being taught how God set the world up, not just that he made, like I said, not just that he made the stuff, but he set the world up to all work for us. And that, to me, that's, that's still the amazing thing that, that it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around sometimes. And I think it's one of those interesting situations where it's hard to wrap our mind around, plus we take it for granted, maybe because it's, it's hard to understand, I don't know. But the fact that God created all this stuff for us in a way that it works is really an amazing thing. And going back to some of the science and Bible stuff that we talked about several weeks back, one of the things that, one of the, the most convincing arguments that a theist has when speaking to a, an atheist about the existence of God is honestly this, 
the fact that it works, the, the argument from complexity, the, the universe could have been uh, an infinite number of things could have been that all didn't work. And science, scientists have realized, you know, looking at all these different com like combinations of possibilities, the fact that the universe is so finely tuned for us is, honestly, it's, it's almost impossible, probability-wise. And what God is saying is, I set this up for you in a specific way so it functions for you so you guys can have the things that you need. And so... Next week, we're going to talk about um, days four through six as God moves from setting up some of these basic functions into setting, uh, establishing functionaries, people to function in these spheres and do the things that he wants them to do. So that's all I have today. We're done a little a couple minutes early unless you guys have more comments or questions. I know I blew through that really quick, but I wanted to make sure to hit all the points because we're running out of running out of weeks. <laughs> yeah. And I love like the basis of time one because like the more we learn about time, the cooler that one is to me. Like how like time and space bends around objects and that makes gravity and like all sorts of cool things. Like I, I think about how they didn't even understand that, but how we think time is so linear in our experience, we don't even get it. We don't even understand time. I don't know. So I think it's cool. Like, he's like, I'm going to make time like, linear for you and make sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How he used their language to them. And that just shows that, because I mean, we talked about it, when would it be used? What, what terminology would you use as God? What would you use today's scientific terminology? 200 years from now terminology? Or, you know, or back then? And so that's really neat that he was like, listen, let me explain to you so you can understand it. Yeah. It's like, it's like when your kids say, where do babies come from? <laughs> you don't go, you don't, depending on the age, you don't go into the entire description of the whole scientific process. You may say, they come from mommies and daddies, or they come from the hospital, or whatever you want to say to your kids, which I wouldn't say that to a kid, that's, that's weird. But you, you say things in a way that they can understand, the things that, a way that makes sense to them. And so I think that's what God is doing here. So he's saying to these people at the time, you know, I'm not going to get into rel the theory of relativity and all this stuff and however this happened. I'm just going to say, this is what I did for you because I love you. I think that's, that's the, the message we need to take away from this. Okay, thanks.